Well, if you don't know me, my name is Aaron Smith. I am the pastor of student ministries. I get the privilege uh, this week and next week to open up the Word of God with you. Um, last week we started our series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to take all three of these weeks and slow down and study this famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What I'd like to do this morning is start by reading the chapter in its entirety, and then we will dive in from there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, make your way there, and we'll read the chapter in full. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. As we begin to look at our section this morning, we're going to look at specifically verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13 here. As we begin to do that, let's think about where we've been so far. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3. And if you remember, Paul is writing to this Corinthian church who has a lot of problems. And one of the main problems he's dealing with all the way throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians is arrogance, conceitedness, self-love, a love for praise and self-distinction. It was a part of the culture there in Corinth. And so as he begins in chapter 12 this discussion on spiritual giftedness. He follows it up in chapter 13 by saying, listen, you can be as spiritually gifted as you want, but if you're lacking love, then ultimately 
Your usefulness is at zero. That's what he says. If I speak of tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy, I know all knowledge, I've got the brains, but I have not love, then I am nothing. No matter how much you think you are, you're nothing if you're void of love. And then in verse 3, he talks about giving away all of your possessions and even delivering yourself up going to the extreme of your body being burned in a martyr-like death, if you lack love, then it profits you nothing. So what I tried to press into your conscience last week, and what I hope the Word of God pressed into your conscience last week, is the absolute necessity for biblical love. God calls His church, and you are called as His church, to love. You can trace this all the way throughout the New Testament. This is what you're going to read over and over. Walk in love, walk in love, walk in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And I left you with this question last week. What is love? What is love? Our culture has a definition of love. Our culture is not immune to talking about love. Our world talks about, they prize, they desire, uh, perhaps more than anything else, love. According to uh, Billboard.com, you know, Billboard's the website that ranks all the most popular songs in the world. According to Billboard.com, since 2000, there have been close to 400 songs on the nation's top music charts that contain the word love in them. You could probably think uh, not very long and come up with a list of songs that contain the, world, the, the word love in the title, or it's about love. And, and usually what you see when our culture talks about love is, is you see they think about it in sort of one dimension. Love is a feeling. Love is, is something that we feel deeply. And the way we analyze whether or not we're being loved is by how we feel. And as of late, there's become this concept of, of self-love. So, so love's object is not other people primarily. Maybe it eventually makes it there. But the object of love should be inward first. After all, the culture says, how can you take care of others if you haven't first taken care of yourself? That's the world's idea of, of what love is. It's primarily a feeling, and it's primarily, or at least directly, first applied to self. Of course, I don't have to tell you that Christians are not to be letting the culture define these terms. The culture doesn't get to define what we think about any one category. We want the Bible to do that work and we want to look at the, what, what the Bible says when it talks about love. So the question we have before us this morning is, is what does the Bible say about love? <coughs> now I've heard people get at this a few ways. And I know there are some of you who may think this way. Let me just, let me just say, there, there are 
many people who say, well, it sort of depends on the word that you use or the word that is being used in the New Testament. So usually you have, you know, the word agape used. We all know that term, agape. And usually what people think about when they think about that word is the self-sacrificial love. I'm going to to give up my rights so that you may have something. There's a self-sacrifice or there's, there's philo or the, the verb form would be phileo. That's the, the friend type of love or the, the love that you would have in a friendly way or, or maybe for a family member. So while agape is more about self-sacrifice on, on behalf of another person, phileo is, is, well, I love you like a friend. And then you have eros, which is more of a romantic love. And so you have all these terms and Here's, here's the thing that I want to, in love, um, let you know is that I, I believe that we should not be packing all of our understanding of what love is based on what word is being used in the Greek. Why? Because you see multiple instances throughout the Bible where one love, the same love is being referred to using both terms. Now, yes, they have these, these different words have sort of their nuanced uses, yes, but they have significant overlap in the way that they're used. One example is John chapter 21. If you remember in John chapter 21, it's the post-resurrection Jesus. And he comes to his disciples. He's talking to Peter who had just denied him three times. He's talking to Peter and he says, Peter, do you agape love me? Do you, do, you, do you agape love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't say, it just, the conversation goes on. So you see, I, I don't think that you can just throw all of your understanding of what love is based on just what word is being used in the Greek because these words are virtually synonyms. They have massive overlap as you study. There are other instances of that. So my position is it's, it's less about what word is being used. It's more about how are these words being used when you see them pop up in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And frankly, what you find when you do this is that love consists not only of actions, but attitudes. So, so another thing that I've heard is, well, love is primarily just what you do. It, love is an action verb. And then, of course, our culture says, well, love is just a feeling that we have. Here's what I want to argue for, is that you see instances of love being both action and attitudinal. So on the one hand, yes, love is feelings and words only. That's an incomplete definition. Love is not feelings. Love is not words only. It's not just, not just attitude. 1 John 3, 16 through 18, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Notice action. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So yes, there is that aspect of love. 
But likewise, you can't say love is just merely external. And I think that there's been this overcorrection because of our culture's one-sided definition of what love is. Of it as just a feeling. We've said, no, it's not that at all. And it's just action. It's just external. And I think we've overcorrected, thrown the feeling talk in, in the trash. And we've said, well, it's again, it's an, it's an action verb only. However, it's not merely doing and external. There are heart attitudes involved with how to love someone in a biblical way. And no, here's what I'm not saying. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there needs to be at all times this goopy, gushy feeling of love for one another. And that if that is lacking in any part, that, well, you're in sin. I'm not saying that. It's not the argument I'm making. I don't think that's the argument the Bible makes. But I'm saying it's not merely external. There is emotional components and dispositions that are involved in fulfilling the great commandment for you to love one another. Where's my proof? Last week's message. Remember, that's what he's, that's what he's calling out in this Corinthian, Corinthian church. You're doing, you're doing, you're doing, but there's no love. There's action, there's action, and action, but there's no love. So, I think the easiest example is that one, and you can point to other places. But my point is, is not that love is merely a feeling, or that, that love is even primarily a feeling, but I am saying we have to be careful whenever we seek to define what love is, not to just say it's one thing. The Bible does not do that. In fact, I think in our passage today, it's going to tell us that love has both emotional and attitudinal components and action. As I said last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 brings love and, and the command to love into its highest resolution. We're going to get, in, in, in chapter 13, you're going to get multiple vantage points, multiple perspective, multiple, uh, multiple camera angles on this idea of love. And what you're going to see here is, is that there's not one single definition. The Bible never gives one single definition, end-all, be-all definition of love. And what you see in verses 4 through 7 are descriptions, not definitions. Descriptions, not definitions. Here's what I mean by that. It's not saying love equals X, Y, Z. But love includes X, Y, Z. You see the difference? So, Pastor Aaron has toes. Pastor Aaron is not a toe. See what I mean? We're, he's describing love using multiple descriptors. Here's what love looks like in the congregation. So these four verses, verses four through seven, contain this beautiful look at the key features of biblical love. Here are some key features of biblical love. This is just 
four verses. It's just a shotgun blast of descriptions of love. I count 15 separate descriptions of love in these four short, short verses. He's just trying, Paul is trying to get these Corinthians as full of a picture of love as he possibly can. Because he says, verses 1 through 3, love is absolutely necessary. And 4 through 7, he says, here's what I mean. They need to have the right understanding of who they need to be towards one another in the context of their church body. So here's what I would like to do this morning. I would like to take this phrase by phrase and just look at what's being said. I'm not going to preach a 15-point sermon necessarily. But we're going to slow down and just see what does he say love is? What does it consist of? So we read in verses 1 through 3, whatever you know, whatever you do in the way of your own giftedness and service in the church, whatever it may be, if it's without love, then it's worth nothing. So what do we need to be in the exercise? of not only our spiritual gifts, but all the ways that we serve God's church. And Paul says that's love. And then he seeks to provide these descriptions. Look at verse 4. We'll start there. And before we get going, just know that when he's talking about patience, when he's talking about kindness, when he's talking about all of these different things, these are not stripped from the context of the church. In fact, these are really personal it's not just having a patient disposition like whenever you can't get your lawnmower to work and, and you're trying to figure out all these things and it's not about not losing patience then. This is in the context of a church when you're rubbing elbows with those around you who are Christians who are children of God. So he starts off and he says, love. Love is patient. Now, I don't think that I need to overly define what the word patience means here, but one thing that is interesting about this word is it sort of has this idea of not just being patient in general, but especially in light of being wronged by another person. It's not just patience in general, but it's especially patience in light of being wronged by another. In fact, it seems, and you're going to see this throughout these verses, it seems as if patience is uh, assumed to be needed by Paul. In other words, Paul assumes that there are going to be plenty of occasions for you to have to bring in patience in the life of the local church. There's this constant temptation for all of us to lose patience. With one another. And that seems to be our tendency, right? Seems to be our tendency. Someone steps on our toes, and the situations are endless, but someone steps on our toes, and we're quick to fire back, have a short temper, even be angered toward others. And what happens is that people end up getting one chance with you, and that's it. They wrong you, and 
Now their name is written down in your book of people to not extend grace towards, not love. And when people get one chance with you and that's all, there is no love, Paul says. Because love is patience and that is not patient. We might as well accept the fact that at some point in our Christian life, and at some point in your time in this church, someone is going to wrong you. Someone's going to sin against you, whether intentionally or unintentionally. They will. Paul says, you and I need to be patient. Part of what it means to fulfill the commandment of love is to be patient with one another. Live with one another with this long-suffering patience. This isn't viewed as a virtue in the eyes of the world generally. The world's way is to say, and we get fed by our culture, don't get run over. Don't let, you stand up for yourself. Don't, don't let yourself get run over. You need to be aggressive. You need to be, you, you need to go tit for tat with someone. To be patient and long-suffering is to be weak oftentimes in the eyes of the world. If this is the very essence of what God calls us to be in his body. Remember Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. God's will and design for you in the local church is to extend great patience towards those around you. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? So, love is patient. What else is love, Paul? Well, love is kind, he says. So he continues on saying in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Both, by the way, are fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see love is patient and kind. You see, you see these terms thrown into, these, into the, what, what the Spirit produces in the life of a Christian Kindness. While patience is the ability to receive a wrong and still love, kindness is kind of the other side of it. Kindness is this heart disposition that propels people into action. Kindness is compassion, concern, understanding that brings us to the point where we act for others. Some have said kindness is love in work clothes. Kindness is prepared to do what is necessary to meet the needs of those you're around. Not just to do it, not from a cold heart, not from simple duty. This is exactly what verse 3 says is wrong. But, but because they want to do good for others. That's the kind heart. Because they have a heart of Kindness, it compels them to act on behalf of others. So Christian, are you kind? Are you patient? Paul moves on. Love is patient, love is kind. 
And he says, it's not jealous. He kind of moves to the section where he's talking about what love is not. Here's what love is. Here's what love is not. It's not jealous. Jealousy. Here's what jealousy is in short. Jealousy is a strong dislike and maybe discomfort with the person's, uh, another person's achievements, success, giftedness, or possessions. Jealousy is a symptom of a heart that seeks to exalt oneself. It's what happens when the serving, when serving the church has become more about us and the attention that we can get. Jealousy is totally self-seeking. One who is jealous often shrinks back when others are used by God in great ways. Jealous people don't celebrate when others are used by God and are impactful in the body of Christ. And jealousy, left unchecked, left undealt with in someone's heart, will eventually have the effect of some being torn down in the body of Christ. You, you start with this, I can't celebrate another person's achievements. I can't celebrate someone else's usefulness. I can't celebrate another person's success. And then if that's unchecked, eventually that same jealous person will begin to devalue the other person. Thus creating disunity in the body of Christ. Another person's opportunities and, and, and usefulness is hard for a jealous person to endure. It's because it's all about self. It's not about the edification of the body of Christ. It's not about God's glory. It's not about the common good of the people. As it says in chapter 12, verse 7, it's, it's about you if you're jealous. It's about you, your glory, the praise you feel like you deserve. And in its ugliest form, again, it begins to actively tear down other members in the body of Christ. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is the issue. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Jealousy is the insidious, one of the most insidious forms of pride. It's going to lead to strife in the body of Christ. It's going to tear down others. It's going to try to destroy others. And listen, if you're someone who is jealous of others and you refuse to deal with that jealousy, it will destroy you too. Remember King Saul? Remember how jealous he was of David? Destroyed him. Drove him mad. Sin always has that effect. The jealousy has a unique effect on a person's heart where it, it, it sinks into their heart and then they begin to destroy themselves, self-destruct. John 3.22, remember when John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus is over there baptizing and everyone's going to Jesus and there's this group of disciples of John's disciples that come up to him and say, hey, everyone's going to Jesus. John was met with this temptation. I want to be jealous. 
of everyone going to Jesus. And John has the perfect statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about me, John says. That's the, that's the humble heart. I recently read a story about George Mueller. Maybe you guys have heard of George Mueller. He was an evangelist and a pastor for many years. He was highly influential in his time. And you may look at him and think, well, he's probably jealous of no one. Well, in 1832, he was co-pastoring co a church with a man named Henry Craig. And he began noticing that there were people and a lot of people who enjoyed Henry Craig's Bible studies more than they enjoyed his. Mueller started to feel these feelings of jealousy crop up. And here's what he writes. He says, when in the year 1832, I saw how some preferred my beloved friend's ministry more to my own, I determined in the strength of God to rejoice in this instead of envying him. I said with John the Baptist, a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. This resisting the devil hindered separation of heart. They, they enjoyed years and years of ministry together, him and Henry Craig. It's because he chose, I'm not going to be jealous of this man. Praise the Lord that he's being used. So, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. And he says, love does not brag and is not arrogant. These are similar concepts, so I kind of group them together. Love does not brag, it's not arrogant. Uh, John MacArthur had a really helpful way of framing up these terms. He says, bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. Jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds them up. Builds, excuse me, builds us up. Once again, all you have to do is turn on the TV on Friday night, watch some, uh, watch some, excuse me, Saturday, and, and watch some college football, turn to the NFL this afternoon, and all you see is when someone makes a first down, they can't help it. They, they got to go, you know. Or the, they score a touchdown, and the celebrations are getting more and more outlandish. Our culture prizes this attitude of, of bragging and, and arrogance. Sometimes we believe that we need, maybe in less obvious ways and in more subtle ways, we believe that we ought to showcase ourselves, even in the body of Christ. This could be on Facebook, it could be on social media. Look where I got to go, look what I got to do, look who I met, whatever it could be. Um, look at the opportunities afforded to me. Could be on the sports field. Arrogance has, unfortunately, in our culture's eyes, and, and unfortunately, sometimes within the church, has become completely benign. I mean, we don't even see it as a problem sometimes to be arrogant. But truthfully, this is a big problem. It was what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. He's, this church was beginning to fracture because of this. Remember what he says. Earlier on, I mentioned it last week. Remember, he says, you guys are becoming arrogant. He says, who regards you as superior? 
Who regards you as superior? But what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? He's saying everything you have, if you're being arrogant, some of this must be from you. No. Everything you have has been given to you. So why do you boast? There's folly in arrogance. The same is true with us today. What do we have that we have truly earned? What do we have that we can be arrogant about? God has graciously supplied us with all things that we need. God has supplied the body of Christ with unique giftings that are meant not to build up self, but to build up his church. So what has happened when a church is jealous, boastful and arrogant? What has happened is your church life has become more about you than about others. Boastfulness, arrogance, jealousy, all are symptoms of a heart that is more about self than about others. You want a good gauge of some of this? You want a good gauge of how self-centered you are? What are, your, what are your conversations like? I've experienced this. And I, I'm always saying this, and it's not, it's not funny, I guess, but I, I just immediately, I've ex, I just thought about my own experience in my marriage and how me and my wife would like to go on walks sometimes and, and talk about things. And, and there's, I, I get on these kicks sometimes where I will, I, I won't even think about it and I'll go 30 minutes talking about one thing. And I have the nerve to look at my wife and say, why aren't you talking very much? <laughs> and she has to gently remind me, uh, you have not taken a breath in 30 minutes. What are your conversations like? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if someone comes up to you and says, how was your day? What's work like? I'm not saying you have to go, no, 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 no. I'm not, I can't talk about myself or I'm in sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is we can tell a lot about how self-centered we are by how much we talk about ourselves in conversation. It's just one gauge of that. Paul says love is not self-centered in any, in any regard. And then he says in verse 5, continuing on with these things that love is not, he says love does not act unbecomingly. Another way to think about this is, is love is not rude. I think maybe there would be some of you who have that translation, love is not rude. The idea is that love is not inconsiderate of others' needs. Our world's favorite mantra is, I don't care what anyone else thinks of me. I do what I do, how I want to do it. I say what I say, and however I want to say it, and others can like it or lump it. I'm just me. But Paul says in God's house, this is not how we conduct ourselves. We, we are considerate of others. And when you're inconsiderate, that's not love. Love considers what might be an offense to others. 
is not Paul saying, hey, you've got to be soft and walk on eggshells around everyone at church. Not necessarily saying that, but he does say, hey, part of what it means to be loving is to consider others and what might cause an offense to them. This doesn't make you soft. This makes you considerate. We'll come back to this concept in a second. Paul continues, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. There there is a big problem in the church when church becomes about us. When, When we start asking the question, what can the church do for me and provide for me? Rather than how can I serve and best look out for the needs of others? There's a problem. We we are no longer operating out of love if we start coming into church thinking about ourselves. Sure, there's a lot of benefit in being a part of the church, no doubt about that. The, The church is designed so that you would be spiritually encouraged and your gifts would be used for others and and that you would be encouraged by the preaching and teaching of the word and worship. But whenever we start having this mindset when we enter this place that this is about catering to my needs, we're not operating out of, out of love any longer. Romans 12, verse 9, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That's not seeking it yourself. That's giving preference to other people. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as being more important than yourselves. Christians, are you doing this? Are you doing this? This is, again, absolutely counter to how the culture behaves. Culture says, hey, it's a dog eat dog world, you're out for yourself. Christians not to think that way. This manifests itself in those who seek his or her own uh, will. They, they try to leverage relationships and resources within the church to meet their own desires. And anything that stands in the way of what they want and what they desire gets critiqued gets criticized, gets disparaged. And anyone standing in their way may also get critiqued and criticized and disparaged. And Paul says that's not a loving attitude. That's not what is to characterize you as a child of God and the household of God. Love does not do that. Love does not seek its own way. He says love is not provoked. Simply means love is not irritable. All right, I got to take a deep breath when I read this one because I can be so irritable sometimes. It's not, it's not easily provoked. You can do nothing right around people who are easily provoked. You are walking on eggshells. Everything seems to set this person off who is easily provoked. They're easily offended by even the slightest inconvenience. So it is interesting Paul essentially says earlier, hey, work not to be an offense to others, but also, hey, quit being so offended. Quit being so easily provoked. 
Every time we are irritable, easily provoked, easily offended, it's just a clear sign of the world revolving around us. Our world revolves around us. It's not about anyone else. This isn't loving. Work not to be in offense, but also work not to be constantly offended. And he moves on. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Christian, keep no account. Keep no ledger of when people offend you. When people wrong you, sin against you. This ties in both patience and forgiveness. Just let's just be real with ourselves. You're going to get wronged and sinned against in the body of Christ. We are sinners still. We are redeemed. We are we are right with God positionally, but we are still sinners. And we still sin against each other. And he says here, if you are going to love others in the church the way you ought, then you ought to extend full forgiveness. The verb here literally means to determine by mathematical process. That, that term reckon it does not, it is not, or does not take into account. The idea there is that you're not making some sort of calculation or, or, or you're not counting how many times a certain individual has wronged you in the church. You forgive. This calls to mind Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus answers Peter, Peter says, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What's he say? Seventy times seven. And you know what he's saying? He's not saying there is a real number. He's saying stop counting. And as long as you're counting, you're not forgiving that's the point. Forgiveness should always be in the heart of Christians. We should be so willing to forgive others. Relinquishing our right to personal vengeance. No longer thinking about it. No longer talking to others about how this person over here wronged us. That's not loving. That's not forgiveness. It's as good as gone. And then in verse 6, he says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. The idea here is we do not affirm or encourage people to not walk in the truth, to walk in, we don't encourage people to walk in unrighteous ways. It is unloving to not only allow someone to continue walking in sin, it is, it is unloving to rejoice in it. This, this sort of reminds you of what it says at the end of Romans 1. Although they knew such things, talking about a list of just detestable sins, they, they know these things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's what the world does. They give hearty approval to sin. In the church, it's different. We are here to encourage one another towards Godliness and Christ's likeness. Hebrews chapter 3. Encourage one another day after day as long as it, is still, as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's your job in the body of Christ. 
We're here to make each other, help each other along the way of Christ's likeness. And as long as you're not really doing that and you're rejoicing and wrongdoing in the body, it's wrong. Men tend to do this. They get around each other. Even Christian men, they get around each other and language just goes loose. We, we, we say what we want sometimes. We're not thinking about speaking in ways that are honoring. We make crude jokes. And it's okay because we're, we're all Christians here. We all know the truth. But, you know, I'll make a crude joke because I know, you know, my testimony is I, I, this person trusts me. Or women, sometimes it's gossip. Men can be gossip too. I don't mean to just put us all in those categories. But you see how we can, how we can feed off one another very quickly in unrighteousness. Paul says that's not loving. Is, people's righteousness is what Paul finds joy in. You, excuse me, what, what John finds joy in. John chapter 3. He said, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my people walking, my children walking in the truth. It's 3 John chapter 3. Excuse me, verse 3. And he continues. Verse 7, love bears all things. Love does not give up on others easily. We, we patiently endure with others. Again, this implies that there will be things to bear with. Paul knows that. Paul knows there's going to be things to bear with in the body of Christ. He says, love bears all things. There will be those who have sins and weaknesses who you need to walk with. And love them through that. Love's going to be the thing that drives you past other people's sins and weaknesses. And it's interesting that we give so, other people so little patience and so little grace in these areas. And then we turn around and when we're in need of patience and we're in need of grace and we expect others to bear with us, we get offended when they don't. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. This is not saying that love is gullible. This isn't saying love is naive. Love believing all things. Remember, this is in the context of interpersonal relationships within the church. Love believing all things means that we are not suspicious of the motives of others. We do not look at what other people say and do and assign motives to it. And believe the worst about them. It's just so easy to do. I know in my own heart. I do it all the time. I have to confess it. We are not to do that because guess what? We usually don't know motives. You usually don't know motives. You think you do. God has not put us in charge of policing motives and policing what we think about, you know, here's the real reason they're doing X, Y, and Z. God deals with the heart. God will deal with that. God will police the motives. God will... Reveal that one day when all things are revealed. We need to be people who believe the best about others in this church. As long as we're do not doing that, we're not loving others like we should. Love hopes all things. Similarly, we need to be those who, hopes all uh, those who hope all things. So easy to give up hope on those around us. Paul certainly had a hope that though this Corinth church was a mess, 
that God was working something in this church. He did not give up hope. He persevered with these people. We have a constant hope that God will intervene in the life of those around us. God can change a person's course. And the love endures all things. This means love is long-suffering. Love does not quickly quit on others. Love does not need love back to do this. Love takes hits and keeps on loving. Love is the thing that will take you past these offenses. Love is the thing that will make you care for someone even when they have wronged you. Love perseveres through unkind words, unkind actions. Love is unrelenting. So, that's a lot. But you see how these things mesh. You see how these things overlap a little bit, don't you? He's just giving you these descriptions of, here's what love looks like. They interlock. And listen to me. Of all the things this passage says about love, never says love is easy. Never says it. Because it's not truly living with a loving heart. It's tough work. There's tears, there's hardship, and there's pain involved in truly loving others. So that's precisely why it's important for you and I to consider the model of our love. The model of biblical love, the model for all of life is the man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says, for while we were still helpless, let me just remind you of the gospel church, while we were still helpless, that was you before Christ, helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. You work through this list in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7. Think about our model. Was Christ patient with us? Was Christ kind to us? Absolutely. Was he, was he long-suffering with us? Yes. Did he bear with us? Does he still bear with us? Yes. Has he forgiven us? Yes. Does he, is, is, is he still in heaven counting all the things that we do wrong against us? No. He has forgiven you completely if you're in Christ. He is our model. And despite how much we still sin against him and stiff-arm him and reject his will sometimes in our life and still sin, he still endures. He still endures. He is the model of our love. His love 
grips our hearts and it catapults us towards greater love towards others. Because if you've been so loved, how can you not extend love towards others? First John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if one truly grasps how much God has loved us in Christ Jesus, if one is truly captivated continually by the gospel and the love that Jesus displayed towards us on the cross, then he or she will not be able to hold grudges as easily or be impatient as easily or be unforgiving as easily or rejoicing in another person's misfortune, whatever manifestation this takes. Christ's love for us propels us towards love for one another. He is the model. He is the example. Church, what would our congregation be like if we loved each other like Christ loved us? What would it, what would it be like? Would it look different? I hope so. I hope we can all examine our hearts in this area. Because God's will for you and I is that we would be busy loving one another. This is not just some fluffy concept. This is your duty as a Christian. I pray that by God's grace, he'll make it happen in Countryside Bible Church. Let me pray. Father, your words are sweet. They're instructive. And convicting. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being long-suffering. Thank you for wiping away our sins, never to bring them up again. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And because you first loved us, help us show love to one another. Help us be about that. Doctrine is wonderful. We love studying your truth and knowing your word, and that is indispensable. Father, help us be a congregation who loves one another. It's in your name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.